0: Please open your Bibles once again to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. I hope you have not come today expecting to hear something peculiarly profound and memorable. I hope you haven't been thinking that I have been storing up something for weeks and months that I'm just dying to say to you. In 50 years, I have said just about everything that I have to say. In actuality... um, I've experienced a great deal of angst in trying to decide what I should preach. A dear friend, knowing something of my dilemma, uh, forwarded to me a copy of Jonathan Edwards' farewell address at Northampton. And I read that, and it did help me. It helped me decide what I most surely did not want to say in my last sermon as your pastor. I actually went away from reading that sermon with a bit of depression I think you know this. It's important that you know this. This is not about me. Okay? It's not about me. I just happen to be here. I just happen to have been given the high privilege of being one of your pastors but I'm not special. I'm kind of like a spoon and a dish full of food. The spoon serves a purpose. You get the food from the plate to your mouth. But it's the food that counts. Any old spoon will do. God just happened to decide that I would be the spoon that would try to get the food to your mouth for a while, a long while. The fact that I have been at my post for so long is due entirely to the grace of God. Nothing special about me. It's grace. It's all grace that put me here. It's grace that is kept me here, along with with your loving patience. How many bad sermons you have had to endure. And maybe the worst about those bad sermons, they were all excruciatingly long. They were bad, long sermons. Well, I never intended to preach a bad sermon or a long sermon, but there have been a lot of them, and you have been patient, and you've continued to come and to pray, and I praise God, and I thank you. My purpose this morning is to hold before you something of the will of Christ for pastoral ministry. Our text has been the standard for pastors since the days of the apostles. And in this text, there is also a standard for you, the people of God and how God wants his people To live their lives. We have seen from David's earlier reading that the Apostle Paul opened Titus 2 by giving specific direction to Titus for ministering to various groups within the membership of the Cretan church. He divides the people according to gender, according to age, and even according to social standing, directing remarks to those who were servants or slaves. Now most often, Paul followed that up with directives to masters. We don't have that here, and I take that to mean that The church in Crete was very poor and they didn't have any masters, but they had a lot of servants. The question is, what is the basis for these directives given to the older men and the older women, the younger men, the younger women, the servants? Why all of these particular directives? What was the basis, the foundation for this? And and why is it that every pastor in every generation must follow this pattern in ministering to the church of Christ? We'll follow as I read again verses 11 through 15. Titus 2 verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men or to all classes or kinds of men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things exhort and rebuke with all authority let no one despise you like every good teacher paul repeats himself in this brief text he he says essentially the same thing twice he he gives two somewhat differing perspectives in explaining the counsel that he has given to Titus and to me and to all pastors. Now, due to time, we'll only be able to examine the first of these perspectives. Here's, Here's a question that our text answers. Why must pastors instruct and exhort all church members with directives peculiarly suited to their gender, to their age, and to their station in life. Well, the first answer, and the one that we will be treating, is this. It's because of what grace is doing in the church. These directives must be given and given over and over and over again because of what grace is doing in the church. If we had time to give the second answer, it would be because of the design of Jesus Christ in dying on the cross. But we'll limit ourselves to what grace is doing in the church. Look at verses 11 and the opening part of verse 12. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. The grace that saves has appeared to all men, teaching us. It was important to the Apostle Paul To recognize and to call to the attention of all his readers that this was a new day in redemptive history, that grace had done something new and radical in human history. Just recently, God had come down with great power and great love in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. This was that event of which the prophets foretold. The Old Testament, all of its prophecies, types, and shadows looked forward to this day. God had come in a peculiar, unparalleled way. He had become man, and he had visited this world to take and redeem a people for himself. And it was the dawn of a different day for those who believed in Jehovah. It was the beginning of a different kind of life, and the pastors who represented Christ in his redeemed communities must make application of that reality to the lives of God's people. Note what Paul says when he introduces this epistle, back in chapter 1, if you would Turn back to Titus 1, verse 2. Paul says, I'm writing to you, I'm coming to you in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised. He promised eternal life before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching. God has manifested this eternal life. He has brought it out into the open. He has made it real, tangible, visibly present in the person of his Son. And those who were not blessed to see his Son in the flesh have Him manifested to them through preaching. Paul had seen him. Titus said not. The members of the Cretan church, they hadn't seen him. He had just recently been in the world. Eternal life has come down in the flesh. And Paul is making him visible to the eye of faith through preaching. Remember what Peter said. Though you do not see him, yet believing, you love him with joy inexpressible. This was something new. The prophet spoke about a coming Redeemer, Messiah. But now he had come, they could know his name. They could have his works described to them, particularly his death and particularly his resurrection from the dead. Go to the last chapter of this epistle, Titus 3. Look at verse 3. For we ourselves also were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice, hateful and hating one another. That's, that's quite a description. Paul said, this, this is the way we were, the way I was, the way I lived. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward men, appeared, not by works, of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. The love and kindness of God has appeared. He has come, and he has saved us by his mercy. Now return to our text in chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. It has been manifested. It has appeared to all men. The thought is this. The God who saves by his sovereign grace has caused his grace to become effectual in transforming the lives of all kinds of people. Grace has come in the historical event of the incarnation. Grace has lived among us. Grace has died for us. Grace has been raised for our justification. Salvation is an accomplished fact, no longer a promise. It's an accomplished fact. Grace has come. The day of grace had begun. The day of promise had ended. The day of grace had begun. And Paul wants his readers to be aware that something new and wonderful had begun. And that was to shape the thinking and the preaching of pastors. Well, now, secondly, we must realize that the grace of God has appeared not only to bring salvation, but grace has appeared to change people, to transform people for God's praise. The human race is not only universally condemned and in desperate need of forgiveness and justification, that's true, but the human race is also universally ruined, universally dead in trespasses and sins, in desperate need of being transformed spiritually and morally. And the saving grace of God does both. It does both. It doesn't just forgive and justify. It makes new. It transforms. It produces real, deep, lasting, and yet progressive change. And Paul points this out by saying, Grace has appeared teaching us And the Greek word translated teaching could be rendered training us. The grace that saves us from the condemnation of our sins also trains us. Every person that is forgiven, justified by grace is also being shaped and trained by grace given a new attitude toward life, given a new perspective, a new way of thinking about themselves, about other people, about God, about material things, about spiritual realities, a new way of living. A new way of approaching every day. Grace is training a people for God. And this training involves, this training requires both public and private instruction. And that is the work of pastors, to teach, to preach, to bring the will of God to bear upon the minds and hearts of God's regenerate people, to train them in the way that God wants them to spend the rest of their days in this world. Your pastors have a responsibility to instruct you on how you should live your life because that's what grace is doing. Grace is training you for God and he's using your pastors. And sometimes, sometimes that means they have to get in your face Sometimes they have to dig around in your life. Sometimes they have to talk to you about how you're doing marriage. And how you're doing parenting. And and how you're doing work. and, And how you're relating to the material world. Because grace is training a people for the glory of God. And is using... Instruction in the Bible to do it. Today, it is becoming increasingly popular for evangelical pastors to repeat the theme that the primary work of the pastor is to evangelize. The primary work is to preach the gospel, to see people converted. And that's what pastors ought to do, week in and week out, preach the gospel. Well, of course, we're to do the work of an evangelist, but that is not the emphasis of the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles instruct pastors about shepherding the flock of God, keeping them in the way. What way? The way of faith, yes. But the way of holiness. The way of living life in a manner that pleases God. We don't do that automatically. We need to be taught. We need to be instructed. We need to be reminded. Okay. So that's what grace is doing. Now thirdly, Let's consider how Paul depicts the training of grace. How does he describe what grace is seeking to achieve in the lives of God's people? Verse 11 again. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us or training us, that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. One of the factors that makes the writings of the Apostle Paul difficult to understand is the way he piles up modifying words and phrases. Remember last week, I I gave you a challenge to diagram Ephesians. Remember that? Joy Lewis came to me at the door with that whole hundred-plus-word sentence diagram, piece of paper. She said, that's how I have to understand the Bible. (laughs) Wow. Well, really, that's how we all have to try to understand it, but it's hard. It's hard. The words denying ungodliness and worldly lust comprise a compound participle phrase that describes an element in what grace is teaching us. But the actual predicate or verb that gives us the objective of grace consists in the words, should live. That we should Live. Grace is teaching us that while we are denying certain things, the real objective is that we should live in a certain way. God's grace is training us in life. That makes sense? Can you follow that? Now, beloved, I want to insert something very important here if God intends to save a people, is He going to save them? If Jesus Christ came to die for a people, did He redeem them? If the Holy Spirit is sent with the gospel to call a certain people to faith in Christ, Will he succeed? Will his call be effectual? Yes, it will. If God intends by grace to train a certain people in godliness, will he do that? Will he do that? You see, if If God's love has been set upon us, Christ died for us, and the Holy Spirit has been given to us, we are sure that we are forgiven. But we should be equally sure that God, by His grace, is going to train us in godliness. How does He do that? Well, He uses words. He uses what I'm trying to do up here this morning to give you the word of God and teach you and press you with words. But you know what? Sometimes we dig in our heels when it comes to God's words. And we argue against God's words. And we don't yield to God's words. What does that mean that that God's going to fail? No, He's not going to fail. God will train us by chastening if we do not respond to His words. He will chasten us. And no chastening for the present seems joyous, but afterward it produces the fruit of righteousness, right? God is going to train his people. The Marines have developed a method for taking boys and turning out men, right? And they're really good at it. Beloved, God's really good at taking sinners and transforming them to saints. And he's going to do that. (laughs) He's going to train by words, by afflicting providence. But let me clue you in on something. It's better to listen to his words. It's better to yield to his words, not to fight against him. But even if you fight, He's going to win. Well, now let's discuss the particulars of what grace is laboring to build into our lives. First, grace is determined to take certain things out of our lives, verse 12. Teaching us, training us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. God's gone to war against ungodliness and carnal lust in the lives of his people. Perhaps the foremost characteristic of human beings without the grace of God is that they are ungodly. Maybe they don't deny God, maybe they're not atheists or even agnostics, but they ignore God. As they go about their daily lives, they live as though there is no God in heaven to whom they must give an account. They will think what they want to think. And if thoughts pop in their head and their conscience says, you shouldn't think that, they respond, I will think what I want to think. And they will say what they want to say. At least as much as they think they can without having to pay a price. And all kinds of words come out of their mouths. And they get angry and they they say hateful things and cutting things. And they will live. They will do what they want. With their lives, their life, they will do what they want. They live as though there is no God and no judgment. They are ungodly. And very often, the driving force behind their ungodly thoughts and actions is simply the desire to feel good, to please their flesh, to gain some sensations that will pleasure their feelings. And the world is always there to give you some opportunities, alternatives. Every generation has its own way of trying to please its flesh. 1967, there was a TV program called American Bandstand. Anybody ever heard of American Bandstand? They had a dance contest and and to get young people to volunteer for the dance contest, they offered some prizes. Eight-track tape player for the car. A transistor radio made by Bulova. I I didn't know Bulova made radios, but and then thirdly, a Motorola color TV. <laughs> and those were some of the things that the world had provided in 1967 to help satisfy our yearnings for the flesh. Now, that wouldn't be very appealing to young people today, right? Right? I'm going to give you an 8-track tape player. What? What's an 8-track tape player? I used to have one in my car. (laughs) I'm glad I don't anymore. And it, it struck me as I was thinking about this. One of the ways that the world has changed in modernity is that from a certain point in history, Western man became preoccupied with being entertained. It wasn't always that way. You'd work your 12-hour day and go home and eat some corn bed and bread and pinto beans and maybe you'd go on the front porch and get your banjo and some neighbors would come around and you would sing. The modern world is absorbed with being entertained. And the world is constantly coming up with new ways to entertain you. Now it's iPhone And you can sit in a worship service if you're so brash and and watch a video or a ball game. God is determined to wean his people away from being addicted to fleshly pleasure. Grace is working To help people understand and experience that the highest and best pleasures, the most satisfying pleasure is in God. And it's in Christ. And so grace is training God's people to be more conscious of God than they are conscious of their fleshly desires, even their boredom. More desirous of walking with God and pleasing God than pleasing themselves. And one of the main ways that God does that, again, is through preaching. And it's for that reason, beloved, that pastoral preaching, at certain points... It's going to sting a little bit. It's going to cut. It's going to go to the core of your heart and life. And it's going to reveal your innermost thoughts. And it's going to rebuke you. And it's going to call you back to Jesus. And to the pursuit of holiness. And away from this addiction to pleasure. Look at what Paul tells Titus in verse 15. He says, speak these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Let no one take you lightly. Well, having mentioned the things that grace... Is working to eliminate from our lives. Paul then employs three adverbs, three adverbs to identify what God wants instead of ungodliness and worldly lust. Verse 12 teaching us, training us that denying expelling ungodliness and worldly lust. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. The time doesn't permit a detailed explanation of each of these adverbs. I will summarize what Paul is saying in this way. Grace it's working to train us in self-control. That's what, it, that's what it means to live soberly. Training us in self-control according to what we are learning about the glory of God. That our lives should be shaped by godliness. The glory of God and the will of God stated in the Bible. That's righteousness. Grace is building into our lives control over lust, the ability to deny sin and to have our thoughts and our attitudes and our behavior informed and controlled by the glory of God and the will of God. Godliness and righteousness. Now that training's going to take a while. In fact, it won't be complete till we get to heaven. But it's ongoing. And it is effective. There will be recognized progress over time. God's people will be changed, conformed more and more to the likeness of Christ. And if people don't see us in 10, 15 years, and they come back into our lives, they're going to recognize we're not the same. We haven't gotten worse. By God's grace, we've gotten better. One last discipline. Grace is training God's people to practice And there's a sense in which this one stands alone over and above the others. Look at verse 13. Looking, here's another participle. Looking, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. My brethren, that ought to transcend everything else. While we're seeking to eliminate ungodliness, seeking to eliminate being controlled by our lust, while we are laboring to develop more self-control in the habits of glorifying God and living according to His will, while we are about this, we should be looking. We should be looking, watching for the return of Jesus Christ. As I prepared this, it, it came home powerfully to me I am more conscious than you think of my failures. At times they're overwhelming. But I've realized that of all my failures, perhaps the greatest has been to preach as I should have preached the second coming of Christ. That's our hope, beloved fighting sin, striving for holiness. It's hard work. It points as painful work. It's hard on the flesh. It's humiliating. It points as discouraging. We fall back into the same sins and we wonder if we're making any progress. Is any reality in my heart? Well, there is, but at times it's so hard to see. Sanctification is a painful process in many ways. But, beloved, one of the factors that keeps us pressing toward holiness, godliness, God-pleasingness, is that Jesus is coming soon. That is our assured confidence. This world will not last forever. This world, this climate of temptation and titillization and sin, this painful world of rejection and sorrow and disappointment and separation and toil and grief and death, This world is not going to last forever. In fact, life in this world is very brief and full of sorrow. One of the things I wish I'd done, and you young people, and my grandkids, so good to have, Many of my grandkids, seven of them here. Something I wish so much I had done. I tried on repeated occasions, and I just didn't have the discipline to keep it going. I wish I kept a journal. Because now I'm thinking back and I'm trying to remember. (laughs) I've forgotten far, 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 far more. I can remember, but I'll tell you something I do remember. December 28th, 1969, I was 22 years old, and I was sent by my school to a place called Mebon that I'd never heard of to come and preach in a small country church and I remember driving down the interstate thinking I would never get here I turned off I'm sure I have better directions but I turned off the first exit highway 119 south it doesn't look like highway 119 south now it was farms and chicken farms and grass and I drove down and I came to this big church. And I thought, wow, that's bigger than most of the churches that I'm called to come and preach at. Well, it was Hawfields Presbyterian. <laughs> and and I got up there and realized it. What I didn't know is that I would live the greater part of my life in that community. Hawfields. Never crossed my mind. I was just trying to find Community Baptist Church, so I got back on the interstate and drove several miles, and I came to Buckhorn Road, and I got off and went south about two and two and a half miles, and came up upon a considerably smaller church, a white cinder block church. I don't remember my. I think I was late. The building was largely full. I took care of that. (laughs) And I preached on the tabernacle of God. That God tabernacled with men. And I went home with Carl and Leona Hicks. And had a barbecue for lunch. Came back in the evening and preached. I have no idea what I preached. Got in my car, went home, and said, well, that was weird. I'll probably never see that place again. It seems like it was yesterday. It was 50 years. Our lives are shorter than we think. and Beloved, we don't have time to spin our wheels. We've got an assignment. Jesus Christ wants a people peculiarly His that show forth His praise in this present world. That's what He died to redeem for Himself. And we need to be at it. But while we're at it, to keep, to keep our hearts yearning, keep looking. Because I'll tell you, it is going to be a great day when he comes. When he comes in his bright, glorified body, Surrounded with the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. All of his enemies and our enemies will be humbled into the dust. And in an instant, the entire world, with all of its clamor, will be brought to a sudden halt in horrified silence. The brightness will be blinding. you ever seen videos of the first atomic bomb set off in the desert of America? If you looked at it directly, it would blind you. Beloved, the brightness of his coming will be greater than that. The whole world will be enveloped in his glory, the sounds will be deafening. the trumpet of God, the voice of the archangel, and the power of that will be astounding. Paul put it like this in second Thessalonians. It is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation, those who trouble you. And to give you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints, to be admired among all those who believe. When Jesus comes, there will be wars. There will be battlefields. Somebody will be firing a missile or a drone. All the missiles will fall silent. All the rifles will drop into the dust. And all the governments will cease their business in Moscow, London, Washington, D.C., Beijing. All the governments will grow deathly silent. University classrooms will be empty. I can imagine some professor waxing eloquent about how we know there is no God and everything just happened, and suddenly Jesus appears. Sports will cease, music, concerts will cease, iPhones will be silenced. The only sound will be the voice of the angel the praise of the saints and the cries of the condemned. Oh, have mercy on me. Oh, Jesus, have mercy on me. But there will be no mercy. When Jesus comes, the day of grace will have ended. And the day of judgment will have begun. Beloved, everything you know in this world must end. Bad things like cancer and war, crime, it's going to end. Some good things are going to end. Marriage, parenting, preaching. you don't want to be found unprepared when that day comes. And the only way that you can be ready and prepared and safe, because it could come at any moment, the only way to be ready is to believe in Jesus Christ, to believe enough that you give up your sins and your self-centeredness And you take up your cross and you follow him. The day is coming soon. I pray that I will see all of you there around the throne praising Jesus. Let's pray. And now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty. Dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.